Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Tonight, I want to invite you to turn with me as we talk about striving for integrity to the book of Acts chapter 4 and 5. And where I'm going to start is Acts chapter 4 verse 32. And I want you to just let me catch you up to speed a little bit on where we've been. You see, Acts is a really, really exciting book. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And in Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3, and 4, there's all kinds of awesome stuff happening. Jesus ascends into heaven. The the apostles are waiting for the giving of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost happens. Many thousands of people come to the Lord and become the new church in one day. There's healings happening. There's people living together in a kind of community that's never happened before. All these amazing things are happening in the early um, part of the book. And it's just like so cool. It's one of those times that you want to maybe be in the scripture and be like, man, what was that like to be there in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 where it was so awesome and perfect and things were going well. And then we encounter what we're going to encounter today two different stories which sort of set each other apart. And we're going to focus on Acts chapter 5, but I want you to hear what it says right here. So starting at verse 32, this is what it says. This is what's happening. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them, and from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, from whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And you have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think that doing such a th- think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked for her. Peter asked her, tell me, what is the price you, got, you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test 
the Spirit of the Lord. Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are also at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment she fell down at his feet and died. And the young man came in and finding her dead, carried out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, this is not your normal everyday passage. I'm not going to take an offering now or anything like that. That would be sort of testing you guys. But this, um, this passage is unusual. It sort of sounds like a scene from The Sopranos or a mafia movie. Like, you don't give me everything, we're going to take you out. <laughs> but it's more than that. We just heard the context that all these awesome things were happening. Great power, great miracles, great grace. No one was claiming ownership of their property, even though private ownership was happening. People were willingly giving up their possessions, and the world had never seen anything like it before. And it was in this context that Ananias and Sapphira came into the picture, and we know all about the selflessness that was going on, and we have a better understanding of what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira and just how striking and heinous their sin was. What are the real issues going on in this story? Is it all about money or is it something else? So they could have kept the money for themselves, right? They could have kept the land and not even sold it. They could have sold the property and not given any of it. They could have sold the land and told, honestly, this is what we're giving you and kept the rest. But they portrayed like this falsehood, like we're giving you everything, but really we kept back a couple thousand. There's embezzlement where they maybe made a promise of the money originally and then maybe they pulled back on that and didn't give as much because some of the wording makes it seem like they embezzled some of the money. That's what the Greek word says, that they were keeping back something that maybe they'd already given over to the Lord. There's pride here. Maybe they're not quite sure that God's going to take care of them or they're worried about their image and they want to look good. There's greed. They're wondering about their money. This passage is about integrity. It's about consistency and authenticity in the community, right? There's all these awesome things happening, and now Ananias and Sapphira sort of have this plan where they can get all the benefit with half the cost. It's about appearing more spiritual than you are. It's about who you are when no one's looking. And that's where it gets a little closer to home for us. And I know it relates to me and relates to you in college. Because all this talk about integrity and authenticity is something I hear from you all a lot. Because I know you're under a lot of pressure. And the core issues of integrity don't change no matter where you are. We are all trying to be consistent with our private self and our public self as much as possible. We're trying to have good character and make right decisions and be consistent in who we are. And when I listen to you all and the pressure you're under to perform and to get good grades and to get good jobs and to do all that, I know the, the pressure to succeed and to perform is high. And it's easy to want to maybe cut corners. 
I heard from students saying ethical compromise in college is attractive when we're at college because there's so many others who just seem to be living however they want and not worrying about it at all. And why should I care about how I live? And it's easier to hide things at college sometimes because some of the people you know really well are back home and you don't know as many people here, so it seems easier to hide and justify our actions because we're surrounded by so many people doing whatever they want to do. And there's a lot of pressure. And so cutting the corners is something that pops up. It was pretty easy to find on the internet. People lying on their resume to make themselves look better. You've all heard about people taking steroids and doing things to perform better in sports than they would be able to on their own. People cheating on graduate entrance exams or entrance exams. I Just in November, there was a big cheating scandal on the ACT out east where all these people paid $500 to $3,500 for somebody to take the ACT test for them so that they could get a 29, 30, 31, 32. Because what happens when you have those numbers? What happens? You get scholarships, right? So, hey, if I pay somebody, that'll make me look good and I'll get more money. I'll save money. So that probably makes sense, right? Or, as Richard Foster says it, superficiality is the curse of our age. Today we are faced with lots of challenges around integrity, right? There's lots of things available to us to fool the public. In our age of Facebook and Twitter and all the other social networking sites, it makes it possible for a person to appear more open and transparent or cooler uh, than they really are or to hide behind an image, right? What's uh, the Brad Paisley song, like, so much cooler online? You guys have heard that? Um, it's easy to hide behind an image in our social networking world that is sort of a construct. It's not really real. It's an awesome image, image but does the image match who we really are? And so that might connect us a little bit more because Ananias and Sapphira really want it to look good. They really want it to appear more spiritual and get the benefits of what happened when the gift happened. And that gave a foothold to Satan to really work with them and do something that was a huge challenge to the church. It says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, they kept back part of the money for themselves and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira were, wanted to appear spiritual in nature. But, they, but, they, but in their greed, they lied. And they claimed that they'd given the whole amount of the proceeds to the work of ministry, when in reality, they'd only give part of it. They did not lie just to man, they lied to God. And it says, it says in verse 4, they were trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the people and over God's eyes and everybody else. And it, this decision was made together. It was a conspiracy. They were both in one accord when it was decided to sell the land and to keep part of the money for themselves. And the first thing I want to, I want to raise a couple points, and I'm going to talk a little bit about maintaining integrity, but this should be a wake-up call to us as a Christian community. Because falsehood ruins fellowship. You see, the threat that Ananias and Sapphira posed to the early church is the same kind of pose that our falsehood poses to our fellowship today. You see, there's lots of external threats back then and now to being an authentic community. There's worldliness, 
There's politics, there's atheism, pluralism, other religions. But all these are real challenges, but external challenges don't threaten the core and the integrity of God's church. External threats are easier to face than internal ones. And internal threats like dishonesty and falsehood and a prideful spirit or a vengeful attitude are hard to omit and difficult to face. They're embarrassing and painful. And this is the first time now in this new community of Acts that there's a sin recorded. And it's a challenge to what's going on. What kind of community are we going to be? Are we going to be an authentic community? Or are, we, are people going to be able to fake it to make it? And so for us, we need to realize that falsehood is a challenge to genuine, honest fellowship. And so what's inside us and what was inside of Annas, Ananias and Sapphira puts us at risk. Because I want you to know that when, when falsehood reigns in our community, it's hard to be the community that God wants us to be. You see, integrity has, lack of integrity has consequences. One of them is it causes distrust. You know, all the scandals that have been in the church over the past numbers of years causes lots of people, Christians and non-Christians, to wonder if what's going on in the church with Jesus is really real. And I want you to watch a video, which is from Australia, about Hillsong and what happened with their community. Because this is going to rock your world a little bit about how this challenge, just like Ananias' fire happened back then, how the same kind of thing can happen today. You want to watch the whole thing. It is powerful. It's on line with healer uh, song scandal. If you want to search it on YouTube, but I'm not sure how you react to that. We sang that song here. That's a great song. God used it in many of our lives. Just because it was written with a miss, uh, with some false intentions happening behind it, doesn't mean that God can't use it. But doesn't that raise questions for you? You're like, what's going on? And that scandal, that lack of integrity in him causes distrust. And I don't want you to conclude that Christianity is false on the basis of that because I believe there's so much evidence to the contrary, but it raises a question mark. And so we need to recognize in our own community the threat that our own internal challenges have to our witness. See, one of the things that lack of integrity causes is it hinders our witness and our testimony. See, once you and I open our mouth and say, I have received Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, I believe in Jesus, people are watching and they're looking to see if you match up to their expectations of what God does in somebody who is a follower of Jesus. The jokes you use, the gossip you share, the corners that you cut that are all noticed. What you do on the weekends, how you handle your relationships. Most Christians have a really neat solution. They just don't tell anyone that they believe in Jesus and they follow Jesus and then nobody knows and nobody watches. But God doesn't want us to be stealth Christians. God wants us to be public and honest and people of integrity where our faith, our public, and our private match. And it causes non-Christians to be cynical about believers. I believe there's something totally unique about Jesus, but I'm just raising that question tonight and saying that falsehood 
is a threat to fellowship. That's one of my points tonight. I just want to sit in that for a minute. So here's another one. Grace is never to be a pretext for sin. This awesome period in the life of the church was characterized by this. Abundant grace in verse 433. Even so, so, sin raised its ugly head. This is the way that Satan works. But if our text teaches us anything, that it's while God's grace abounds, God always takes sin seriously. Grace is God's remedy for sin, but not the pretext, the permission to sin. Grace was given to us to put away sin, not to promote it. And we should never think by holding fast to the grace of God that there there is any dismissing of God's hatred for sin or the need for divine discipline. God took the sin of Ananias and Sapphira seriously, very seriously. So we must, so must we, who have experienced God's grace. We have to live in it. Paul said in Romans, said, we who have died to sin should no longer live in it. There's a strong call in our lives to become mature and grow up and become more Christ-like as we grow. We will never experience that fully in this life, but God calls us to be passionate about purity and wholeness and authenticity. So tonight, I want to just read this to you because this is what one of your college peers, not here but at a different school a couple years ago, wrote about her observations about Christians on her campus. It says, after a long weekend of bars and booze and boys, I make it a point to attend Sunday night worship. As I repent for any sins that I may have committed in spite of my good Christian upbringing, I can't help but notice that the person in front of me is the same guy I saw cheating on his girlfriend the night before. In fact, the more I look around, the pews are filled with college co-eds living the same double life my friends and I have down to a science. Faith-filled young Christians in spirit and sexually uninhibited, uninhibited college students by practice. At times, walking into worship on Sunday night does feel hypocritical. It's hard to reflect on the hedonistic weekend that has just passed in a place that I associate with piety and chastity. Instead, I often choose not to think about it at all. There is a trend among people my age to separate their faith from the church's teaching on sexuality and on morality. That's strong stuff. I know this is intense. I know this is challenging. It's challenging for me. It's challenging for you. But Grace is never to be a pretext for sin. And so what I want to call all of us to here is not to be perfect, but is to really lean upon the grace of God and to call each other to a higher standard of community, of living with one another, being the church with one another, calling each other to higher levels of integrity, Being a church that's full of grace, but also full of integrity on campus. And I know the challenges. I know where I messed up in college. I'm not saying anything to you that I wouldn't hold myself to. I want us all to recognize that we are often tempted to compromise. But this is what the students said as we planned worship. They said, you know what? Once it's okay to compromise in a little area around our behavior or our attitudes or what we do, then it's a slippery slope because what else holds way and everything starts to go. And the way that I live matters to you and the way that you live matters to each other because we all look to each other for an example. And so we can call each other to a higher level 
of integrity in living out our Christian call, our response to Jesus Christ. You know, I believe I am such a grace guy. I think that grace of God changes everything and that Christianity's at its core is a grace-filled religion about a relationship with Jesus that you can't earn in any way, shape, or form. But we also need to recognize this next point that I'm going to say is that godly fear is crucial in the lives of believers. You know, it's probably not surprising to you after Ananias and Sapphira fall down dead that great fear struck the hearts of the believing community and all who heard about what had happened. The result was a wave of godly fear that swept over the church and all those who heard the story. They had been filled with great power. They had been filled with great grace and great fear. But because you and I have experienced great grace, we experienced in Christ, it's all too easy to take God's forgiveness of our sins for granted. The Spirit teaches the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. And fools despise wisdom and instruction. Understanding who God is and giving Him proper reverence That is, knowing that he is worthy of our fear is as important as knowing that God is compassionate and loving. Whenever any of God's attributes are viewed out of whack or disproportionately by focusing on one more than the other, let's say love over against holiness or holiness over against love, we become lopsided in our relationship to God. Too many Christians and unbelievers alike are flippant in their attitude towards God. This passage should challenge us to make clear that God is not one to be trifled with. And though God encourages us to draw near to him without fear, we should be in awe and respect of his power and his glory and never forget that he is the one true God who made heaven and earth and he is holy. So here's the question I'm sure is raised in your mind. Why Ananias and Sapphira? Why did they die the way that they did? And I honestly can't answer it. I don't know. We're not, we're not given an answer to that question in this passage. Our only response to this should be there, but for the grace of God, go I. Which means... I guess I deserve the same thing that Ananias and Sapphira experienced for some of the things in my life, and probably you do too. I don't know why they were judged so harshly right then. It was a new beginning. It was a critical time. The cement was still wet in the early community, and things were really important, and how they dealt with sin was going to set a precedent for how things happen in the future, and maybe it was a critical time. I don't know. But This is what you and I need to hear in this text. This story must open our eyes further to the grace of God in Jesus Christ towards us. God has come among us in his Son in order to restore the world and to usher in a new creation and a new people. In in, In this restoration... That which is good is sanctified and restored, and that which is evil is destroyed. Grace come upon those who God chooses to show mercy. 
Each day that we wake up and go about our daily routine is a gift from God. Every day is a gift. It's undeserved favor that God shows to us. Each day is a day of grace, a day to bring glory to God by repenting of our sins and asking for his Holy Spirit to guide us in all of our living. God is sovereign. I don't know why God does some of the things that he does. He is holy. He fills us, fills us with his Holy Spirit. And we in turn become his agents of grace wherever the Lord calls us to be in this world. So that's my call to you tonight. It's to say it matters how you live. It matters how we live in community. God desires us to be a full expression of what he wants us to be, the light in the world, a city on a hill that reflects his glory. And we need to recognize that falsehood threatens fellowship. So I'm going to quickly say, how do we strive for integrity? This is what I want you to hear. Be committed to honesty within yourself, no matter how much it hurts. You know what? People who love authentic community always prefer the pain of temporary chaos to the peace of superficiality. Sometimes it takes hard work to be an authentic community. I invite you to strive for honesty and purity, integrity in all things. This is what 1 Timothy 4.12 says. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Do you hear it? Blow people away. Even though you're young, blow them away by your ethic and your standard in response to Jesus Christ. And people will be like, aren't you young? But look at the maturity that they have. That's what I encourage us to be as we live out our faith on campus. This is what it says in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whether it be in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So be committed to honesty with yourself and be committed to the truth no matter how much it hurts. Be committed to honesty with God. Don't take God's forgiveness lightly. Don't admit how weak you are and then do nothing about getting stronger. I invite you tonight to invite Jesus to some of the deepest and darkest places that you have in your life and just invite him to come in. You don't have to fix it yourself. Just say, Jesus, I'm admitting to you that this is there. I need you, Jesus. I need your help. I need to be free of this thing that has bondage over me. I need to be free of this thing that is reigning over me. That I want you to reign over me, Jesus, not this thing. I invite you to work on those areas where you are weakness within just sort of asking God to say, where do you need to change? And one other way I want to invite you to have integrity is not only honesty with yourself and honesty with God, but be honest with others. I want all of you here, if you really are serious about being an authentic community and having integrity yourself, is to be accountable to somebody that you can trust. Not ten people, one or two people that you can be accountable to. Because integrity is uniquely and unavoidably intertwined with honesty. 
Anytime that we try to handle temptation in isolation, we are extremely vulnerable to deception and attack. You know, I have some guys in my life, Jonathan and Tim and Josh, we meet every week. And we're all pastors, and we get together, and we're honest about our struggles in our churches and our struggles in our families. And when one of us feels like quitting, we build the person up. And when sometimes that's me, sometimes that's somebody else, we are honest about the things that we wrestle with and we crush and we have integrity. My friends are not responsible for my integrity, but they help steer me towards integrity. And I want my friends to experience the full joy that Jesus has to offer to them. And I know that they want it for me. So will you be honest with somebody? Will you make it your pledge tonight? I need to get into some kind of accountability with somebody in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to make that my prayer. I hope that's what you'll say. Now here, I'm going to ask you some, some questions that I want you to think about, about integrity and authenticity in your life. And then we're going to move to the communion table because I don't know about you, but I'm ready to take communion because I, I know I need it today. So questions to help you measure your integrity. Am I transparent with others? Do I role play based on the persons that I'm with? Am I the same person when I'm in the spotlight as when I'm alone? Do I quickly admit wrongdoing without being pressed to do so? Do I have an unchanging standard for moral decisions? Or do circumstances determine my choices? Do I make difficult decisions even when they have a high personal cost attached to them? When I have something to say about people, do I talk to them or do I talk about them? And am I accountable to at least one other person for what I think, for what I say, and for what I do? I know this is hard stuff, and I've been wrestling with this for a couple weeks. And I'm glad I shared it because, you know what, the thing that I want you to know that the church is two things at the same time. The church is holy, and it's God's way that he's decided to be at work, one of the ways that he's decided to be at work in the world. And the church is set apart to be God's instrument in the world. I believe that with all my heart. But at the same time, the church is human and fallen and full of broken people in need of God's grace. But we can call each other to respond more fully and to set the standard high, to set the bar high of how we're called to live. 